Welcome to Decades From Home, a podcast about the weird and wonderful side of living in Germany. And all without saying, Wir schaffen das. I'm Nick Houghton of 40%German.com and I'm joined by my co-host Simon Maddox. And again this week we've got another guest co-host. We'd like to welcome to the show Marty, sometimes known as the Honourable Husband on Twitter. Marty is, according to his Twitter bio, a talkative Australian-American marketing guy who lives in Germany. He and his Japanese husband regularly find new reasons to think the other odd. Well, I guess we'll see just how talkative Marty is today. Thanks for joining us, Marty. It's a pleasure to have you with us. And a pleasure to be here. Uh, this is the bit that I have a problem with because I don't know how then I would go to Simon because it's like we'll give you a massive talk up and then it's like all right Simon <laughs> anyone who listens knows I'm here <laughs> I'll just breathe heavily in the background <laughs> yeah so how are you both doing guys here in Munich it's a beautiful day the weather is glorious we're thriving here in Munich under conditions where we've had mild relaxation of the lockdown so we don't have to wear an FFP2 mask we can get by with an ordinary mm -hmm. surgical mask and everyone's going around talking to each other and Munich has had such Oktoberfest withdrawals every day every day of the weekend you see people dressed up in their tracht <laughs> and they go out and have picnics or something like that as a kind of substitute mini Oktoberfest so the mood here in Munich is fantastic uh, and it's infected both me and my equally honorable husband <laughs> nice Sounds really positive. So you were having, did you have masks in the street up until a few weeks ago? Not in the street, but every place like going into building shops and on public transport, you had to have FFP2 masks, mm -hmm. which of course have been provided, you know, a limited supply of them are provided by the public authorities. But now we've relaxed it a little bit. Uh, the opera is even opening. Yeah, I suppose it's a sign that things are slowly, I, have, I hate that phrase, the, things are slowly returning to normal or <laughs> it's the new normal. I'm like really done with that <laughs> but you know what i mean it feels yeah, like there's yeah. some normality returning uh, looking at your twitter i was struck by your pinned tweet where you say i speak english in flowing cursive inscribed by an eloquent quill upon the finest handcrafted parchment on the other hand i speak german scrawled on a rock with another rock <laughs> i know that this is something that a lot of people who learn german will empathize with do you feel as though you are getting any closer to upgrading from a rock or maybe a souvenir oversized pencil or ever so slightly more pointy rock? Uh, in other words, <laughs> do you feel like your German's improving? Oh, oh, you start with the tough questions there, Nick. That's, the, <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a toughie. Uh, well, I, I've lived in a number of places around the world. Um, and, uh, you know, in particular, I spent five years in Japan. Mm -hmm. And it has never ceased to amaze me how little language you actually need to get by, <laughs> right? Just in, in, in normal day-to-day -day speech and conversation. And I've relied on that a great deal, of course, in, in learning German. My German has improved, but, you know, I, I, it's the normal transactional things that are absolutely no problem, right? Mm -hmm. Things like, I, I actually feel extremely comfortable going to the doctor in German. Okay. There's no question about that. And part, partly because a lot of the, the terminology is all Latinate and Greek mm. and things like that, mm -hmm. and that's in common with English. But I, but I have no, no problem going to the doctor in German or the supermarket or having a pub conversation, but business has to be in English. Okay. And luckily, because I, you know, my profession has a lot to do with international business, um, that's a good thing. So I can, I can manage you know, a consultancy, which is what I do now after you know, many years in global advertising on global brands. I now have a consultancy and I may, I'm able to do business in English here in Germany and, and around the world too. Mm -hmm. 
Could you speak to any German before you arrived? I did. I did an introductory course in university in German, so I had a, a little bit. But you know how it is. Learning a language in the classroom is is very different from actually actually using it. And so there there were lots of embarrassing mistakes and the wrong the wrong words. I've called the sunlight strict when I wanted to call it strong, because we as all all we know the German word string. <laughs> yeah, things like that. Of course, I do that kind of thing. I get my e's and i's mixed mm -hmm. up. Oh yeah, I do that all the time. Right. That's that's a big one for me. Mm. When I did study German in a classroom. There, we would often read from really simple creamies, you know, uh, cops and robbers kind of things. And the cop who said mm -hmm. uh, what was written was uh, halt oder ich schieße, which means stop or I shoot. Now, if you mix up the E and I, <laughs> yeah, for yeah, listeners exactly. who don't speak German, it's stop or I shit. Which is an equally effective threat, you know, like I think <laughs> if the police said that, I would be like, oh, okay, like, mm, don't like the sound of where this is going. <laughs> Quite right, quite right. So, so it's that, that, those kinds of embarrassing mistakes, and I kind of go, yeah, whatever. I do notice, though, that native German speakers would prefer to default to English, even if they make mistakes, rather than kind of listen to my, I think, amusing and charmingly mistaken German. <laughs> do, do you guys find that when you speak German? Oh, you might, you two might speak German perfectly, which I certainly definitely don't. not perfectly, no. A long way from perfection. It's a destination I'm hoping to to reach in in like fifty years time. Is perfect German, but I don't think I'm, I'm quite there yet. Yeah, I always have that where Germans I'm speaking to will will switch to English, often more out of courtesy. My accent's quite strong, so I think they hear the accent. Sus. And even especially now with my daughter, who's got really ginger hair, and then they hear my accent, and then they're just already speaking English mm. straight away. Yeah, so so that'll happen quite often, but. If yeah. I make a mistake as well. Yeah, I joke that I speak uh, spaghetti German. I speak it like Chico Marx spoke mm. English. And of course, he put that on. But uh, I make those kinds of mistakes. Mm. Simon's pretty good at um, German, so... I imagine he doesn't make the same kinds of mistakes as, as, as perhaps we're making. I've got to the point now where I can not have people switch into English on me. People seem to feel comfortable enough with my level. Mm. And yeah, I think my accent is, is getting better all the time. But I think anyone who was fastidious about the grammatical structures of the language would realize very quickly that I'm not actually very good and I'm just kind of swimming mm. in, in waters that are very familiar to me as opposed to expanding my horizons. But yeah, all my family, all my German family here, I don't speak English with any of them apart mm -hmm. from my wife. So yeah, I've had to realize that if I want to be part of my, my family here, improving my German was going to be the quickest way to, to build relationships with people. This is something that happened the other day. Mm -hmm. I had to phone my mother-in-law to thank her. I felt like she's been helping out and everything with uh, with the kids and with the kids, with, with my daughter and some other with stuff. the kid. Yeah, <laughs> Freudian slip that. <laughs> yeah, I had to phone her and I found I couldn't be sincere. <laughs> she's concentrating so much on getting the sentence right that you just lose all tone. So it just sounds a bit robotic. And I had to switch to English and she speaks a bit of English just to say like, thank you. And like, I'm really thankful that you've been able to help us out because I couldn't, I can't hit those notes. That's something that I found like tone of voice mm. is quite tricky because most of the time I'm just concentrating on, did I, did I use the tense right? Or did I use the grammar right? Well, it's, it's interesting you should say that, Nick, because, uh, you know, I, in my corporate days here in Germany, we had a bilingual office. It was English and German. And our rule of thumb was always in determining what language should be used is if the person speaking their uh, second tongue, you felt you could understand their personality when they spoke, mm -hmm. then that was kind of like, oh, we're comfortable enough in that language to use it. 
And it was very interesting because mm. there, there, there were cases where we saw, uh, and I'm not one of them, I, I, my German is very, very functional and robotic and, you know, uh, can I have three sausages? Thank you very much. Uh, all that kind of stuff. There were several colleagues who not just had English as a, as a first language, mm -hmm. but other languages as well, uh, who got to that stage where they could speak German and let their personality shine through. Yeah. As long as I can do that. And apparently, like at a pub, I can do that because as we all know, alcohol is the universal <laughs> translator and, uh, and things. But, uh, but generally, it's, it was interesting to hear them and interesting to hear people express themselves differently you know, because when people spoke English as a second language, it was often much less emotional. It was far more cerebral. Even to the point where your decision making is different when you're speaking a different language, because you have to think about the situation much more when in the second language oh, yeah. than you do in the first. It's more instinctive in the first language. But I had that when um, my parents-in-law first came to the UK to meet my parents, and they saw us in an English-speaking environment, and my mother-in-law was like totally mm. shocked. Because and then so that's when I realised oh, I am a, quite a different person. When I, I'm much quieter, I'm much less boisterous in German than I am in English. Because I'm just not confident enough. Uh, we had dinner with some friends yesterday, and there were intelligent people, and they're having like quite intelligent conversations and using quite high high level uh, language. And I was lost after a bit. I was like kind of waiting for the. I knew and you know how conversations ride. So the things get simpler towards the end when people are making conclusions. Mm. And I was just like. I'm just going to wait. They're going to discuss the points and then they're all going to conclude. And then once they concluded, I was like, I think I got most of what was concluded there. But like the actual conversation sort of passed us by because it was so quick. And yeah, it was it was one of those, you know, where you're, you're sort of hanging in for dear life. <laughs> it's like, I hope they don't realize I'm an idiot. No. <laughs> I think I made it out of there okay. Well, the, well it was interesting actually because the, there was an American anthropologist called Edward... Edward T. Hall, yeah, yeah. Ed, Edward T. Hall, yeah, who was the first to say that there are high-context cultures and low-context cultures. Uh, German culture is very low-context. You have to be absolutely explicit, and the words mean nothing more than what the words say. Whereas, you know, if we go to the other end of the spectrum, Japanese, for example, when you don't say something, that's what mm -hmm. carries all the meaning. Mm -hmm. So it's very high-context. You think about the social context of you know who the person is who's speaking not just what they say and english speaking countries tend to be low context as well but not nearly so low context as as germany and i've, I've been tripped up on that i've had to be absolutely a thousand percent clear in what exactly i say uh, whether it be in german or english ambiguity isn't a isn't something that you can sort of operate in. And mm. I, you find that, I find that more with personal interactions than I do with business interactions. I find with personal interactions, a lot of social communication, and for English speakers, certainly British people, is based around like making jokes and being sarcastic. And you, you take that away and your conversation becomes a little bit more stilted. And I think there's plenty of times where, and I'm sure Simon's had the same thing, where you make a joke and it just doesn't, it doesn't land or it doesn't, the, the reaction is so like sincere and it's the same in the reverse when people are really sincere here. Part of my brain's like, are they taking the piss? <laughs> I think I think they might be taking the piss out of us, you know? Britain's not a, such a sincere country. It's not, everything has a double meaning. Everything has like a hidden sort of contextual meaning behind it. Look at us now, flying high with episode number 42. Any Douglas Adams fans out there will be doing a little internal doth of the cap to these digits. 42 is, of course, 
the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe and everything. These words in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy have become seriously iconic, and many have since wasted years and massive effort trying to ascribe some deep symbolic significance to the number and its occurrences. So, gentlemen, does 42 feel like a solid enough answer for you? And if not, are there any alternative theories? Uh, Simon, are you uh, are you asking us the meaning of life, the universe and everything? Yeah. It's a bit deep for Sunday morning, <laughs> isn't it, mate? Deep thinkers here, mate. You need to accept it and move on. <laughs> Well, I hope I hope Marty's a deep thinker. Please allow me to give my interpretation of the text in this one. Perfect. The, the, the way I, I kind of interpreted the 42 joke was not so much that there is a meaning behind 42, but just, you know, what's the meaning of life? Oh, it could be anything. 42, out of the sky. Mm-hmm. And thinking about the meaning of life rather than living it is a sure way to find unhappiness. All the people who were pursuing 42 were the unhappiest, the ones who didn't have personal relationships in their lives, the ones who weren't grounded in what they did, you know. And Arthur Dent, at the center of it all, uh, was perhaps the most sane person who just stood there and said, crazy world, what am I going to do? And that's kind of a lesson I've learned throughout life. What's the meaning of life? Where should I go? How do I get there? Am I in control of it? Do I understand everything? And the answer to that is, if who cares? You know, just live every live every day as it comes. I I I appreciate feeling meaningless sometimes. I think it can be quite a liberating feeling in the way that we live our lives. I think if we ascribe a lot of significance to decisions and moments, it can be kind of crippling. So I I really like Forty Two because it's just so flippant and allows you to just to to move on with it. I think it's. Uh, a very charming piece of philosophy and a far more rewarding one than some of the, the real philosophers have given us along the way, uh, not to diminish mm. Adams's contribution uh, to the genre. Well, I, I think it's kind of relevant to what we're discussing here because I, I've noticed a trend uh, or a characteristic amongst my German friends and neighbours is they don't let 42 go quite as easily. <laughs> and when I say don't let 42 go, they don't let things like 42 go. Everything has to have an explanation. Or Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. if it doesn't have an explanation, it means you haven't worked hard enough or Mm. thought hard enough or thought deep enough. And and that's just simply part of German culture. And, uh, you know, Germans live with uncertainty in the same way that uh, everyone else in the world does. But the uh, pursuit of certainty is is a cultural characteristic Mm -hmm. that I kind of find interesting. And I don't feel uncomfortable living amongst. So do you think think that's why... Tatort always ends with some like it's not always a satisfying ending, but it's like it's like it's always ends ends with a, a clear conclusion. Like, and I've always found that the most unappealing thing about that show that it, it doesn't it always has to conclude with something. It always has to have like an ending. It's never sort of open ended really. Or like, there's a lot of sort of TV shows that end with some kind of trite ending after being like quite dramatic, and you're like, oh, you can they're obviously going to kill the hero off here or something like that, and it ends with just sort of quite a formulaic ending. <laughs> I wonder if that's the case, because my, my wife hates it. My, when she watches, watches television and there's an ambiguous ending, uh, like an American TV show, she gets really upset about it. <laughs> it's quite funny that you say that. No, and I just just as a, like as an example, it's anecdotal, of course, but it does it, it is interesting you say that, Marty. Well, an- anecdotal is fine, because that's what anthropology is. That's natural science. You're observing the world around you. So, you know, and if you make a number of those observations, we now have two. 
we have yours and mine. So that's science. Mm-hmm. So when do we publish? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, just, I'll get on it. I'll get on it. I'll see what I can do. I'll, I'll knock up uh, 10,000 words tonight <laughs> and I'll send them to you. The actor and icon Stephen Fry claimed to know the true answer to the meaning of 42, having narrated the movie. But he won't tell, saying he's going to take it to his grave. The author himself rather undermined the myriad analyses when he dismissed them all with a simple answer. He said, the answer to this is very simple. It was a joke. It had to be a number, an ordinary, smallish number, and I chose that one. Binary representations, base 13, Tibetan monks are all complete nonsense. I sat on my desk, stared into the garden, and thought 42 will do. I typed it out, end of story. So there we have it. The meaning of life is a joke. Deal with that. If you're not happy with 42, one possible meaning of life could be distilled into one word, unity. And with that in mind, let's move on to our weekly release anniversary as we celebrate a significant German date on release day. Tomorrow, today, yesterday, last week, whatever your listening relationship to the 3rd of October is, is one of the most significant days in modern German history. German Unity Day or Tag der Deutschen Einheit. October 3rd commemorates German reunification in 1990 when the Federal Republic of Germany, West Germany, and the German Democratic Republic, East Germany, were unified so that for the first time since 1945, there existed a single German state. Unfortunately, this year it lands on a Sunday, so there's no real national holiday, just a quiet day of reflection with no loud noises or distractions. Some of you German history boffs will be thinking to yourselves that a better choice to commemorate the reunification could have been the day the Berlin Wall came down, 9th of November 1989. Thanks once again for that, Herr Hasselhoff. 9th of November also coincided with the anniversary of the proclamation of the German Republic in 1918 and the defeat of Hitler's first coup in 1923, both pretty key moments in German history. However, the 9th of November is also the anniversary of the first large-scale Nazi-led programs against Jews in 1938, the Kristallnacht. So the day was considered inappropriate as a national holiday. What I always find interesting is we don't really have a national, and we have St. George's Day, obviously, in, in England and uh, the various Saints' Day, St. Andrew's Day and, and St. Patrick's Day and stuff like that. But we don't really have like national days in the UK. And the only other national day that's sort of in our psyches is Independence Day or something like that in the US. Perhaps that Thanksgiving, I suppose, like as a national day. And they're quite well celebrated, whereas it's interesting that the, the German Day of Unities, it's like properly sombre. There isn't like fireworks, particularly. There's, they're not uh, having barbecues on the, uh, on, in the gardens or anything like that. It's, it's quite sort of respectful. And yeah, I always find that as an interesting, interesting way of going about it, considering how other countries celebrate their national days. German celebrations tend to be pretty boisterous, right? Mm. So it's things like uh, beer festivals or or whatever. You know, as soon mm-hmm. as there's a couple of drinks involved, everyone's singing and hugging each other inappropriately mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. Here in Munich, it, it has an extra extra little wrinkle to it because the authorities make sure that they schedule it so it covers the day of German unification. Mm. So there is always some place to go to celebrate, and it's something Mm. worth celebrating. Here in Munich, you go for your Oktoberfest day out. Mm. There is a little bit of that in Munich, and it's acknowledged to some degree because Oktoberfest, among, you know, apart from being the world's largest frat party, you know, it's one of those things where you know you celebrate it, and you're celebrating something of the the spirit and origin and what we share in common. I find it kind of good that that sort of stuff isn't jingoistic mm. because that's not appropriate in Germany. Last time again that we talked about, you know, that there was a jingoistic support of a government that didn't work out so well. So uh, 
I can understand that. You know, it's low-key mm -hmm. patriotism. And you remember when uh, Germany uh, won the World Cup and, and they, the word partiotism was coined. Football is kind of our uh, national celebration. Mm. You can celebrate how great we are as a nation if our team wins, right? And that's, that's kind of the closest you get to the, to the uh, fireworks and shouting of other national holidays, right? Particularly, you mm. know, like U.S. Independence Day. Yeah, for us, we, uh, uh, we have a way of celebrating German Unification Day, my husband and I, in a way that's kind of, um, kind of unique, I think. We go to the supermarket because, of course, in Germany, all the supermarkets are closed. So what we do is we drive 90 minutes to Salzburg and we go to the supermarket because <laughs> the shops are open. And they don't celebrate German <laughs> Unification Day in Austria because the last time they did that, that didn't go so well either. <laughs> Impfaktion in Nuremberg, sort of verteilt kostenlos Dreimwegler. I'm afraid that if this story speaks to you, you have already missed your opportunity. Because last Friday, the 24th of September, Bavaria's Prime Minister Markus Söder, Health Minister Klaus Holacek, and Lord Mayor Markus Koenig invited people to a special corona vaccination campaign in Nuremberg. Anyone who was vaccinated in front of the Bratwurst Ruhrslein, the iconic tourist spot for sausages and meat plates located in Rathausplatz 6, received a voucher and could then get the Nuremberg icon, the Dreyem Wegler, from the grill free of charge. BioNTech and Johnson & Johnson were on offer to go with your lovely bread roll filled with three gorgeous little Wurstchen. Marcus Söder himself was manning the grill, so it was a pretty unusual opportunity to not only get something for getting your already free vaccine, but also meet the leader of the state. Pretty mad. This sausage campaign was hot on the heels of the visit and photo op that Marcus Söder and Armin Laschet enjoyed a few days before, when the two politicians, one of which could, though it does seem slightly unlikely at the time, but this is the day of the election, so I'm sure we'll find out, be the next leader of Germany. What do you do when you're running for election and you are in Nuremberg? That's right, you get a plate of sausages and potato salad and snap a photo. It's winning hearts and minds, one piece of pig at a time. So, what are the other versions of this? What would the politicians of other parts of the world have to do in order to attract people to get a vaccine? So we've got London, Berlin, Sydney, Tokyo, and apparently Newcastle. I like that Newcastle is in this <laughs> list of esteemed cities. <laughs> Metropoles. <laughs> and Newcastle at the end. Uh, so yeah, what, what do you reckon they're offering people in London to entice the public to get a vaccine? Oh, I'm not sure what they're offering in, in London. What You gentlemen are Brits. What would be enticing? I'm thinking that the sausages that, uh, that are being handed out in Bavaria would be, uh, uh, would be pretty appealing to most Brits. Maybe a, a pint of appropriately warmed up ale could help. <laughs> I can't believe the stereotyping that's going on here. Warmed up yeah. ale. How, warmed how up dare ale. You? Tepid, mate. Tepid. That's what it should be. Well, you know, stereotypes, let's, again, stereotypes are reprehensible. And I apologize to both of you. <laughs> it's all right. We haven't, we haven't started talking about Australia yet. Yeah, we've got Sydney coming. <laughs> Good one on Australia, because this actually happens. All right. So, like, so we were, one of the cities was Sydney. This is for voting. You know, every election day, it's always held on a Saturday. And uh, voting is compulsory in Australia. So it's not like you have to have mm -hmm. an encouragement or anything. But it's part of a you know, kind of little ritual that you go to the polling place and some community group to raise money is set up outside what Australians call a sausage sizzle, which uh, it means mm -hmm. that you have the sausage and a whole lot of onions and a whole lot of uh, mm -hmm. tomato sauce. 
for a small amount, you get a whole lot of sausage and onions on a piece of white bread, which often becomes structurally unstable, so you have to eat it quickly. <laughs> um, and that's just part of the, the ritual of Election Day. It's a kind of happy thing because everybody has to do it, and it raises money for community groups. And they're called democracy sausages. Oh. And is this the same all across Australia? Pretty much. It depends. Sometimes uh, political parties will have, you know, like the conservative sausages on one side and the you know, the labor sausages on the other and you can choose <laughs> see who's more generous but uh, but no it happens everywhere interesting you say that because there was an article i read that was saying would it be worthwhile to pay people to get the vaccine and whether that would be a suggestion because a lot of places are doing these sort of incentives where they give people things i'm not mm. sure if they're giving them democracy <laughs> sausages but maybe they're giving them vaccine sausages in australia there's obviously a lot of places doing these offers for for vaccines do you know what they're doing in london like given that they were giving out bratwurst in places in germany and they were giving out dreinwegler in nuremberg do you know what they're, they're doing in in britain can you guess i mean yeah to, to play on the stereotype i'd go fish and chips um, but it's probably going to be like a sausage roll. There's something that will shock you is that you're not getting any free food. What you're getting is some vouchers. You're getting some vouchers, you know, for, for deliver, Deliveroo and restaurants and stuff like that. They're not giving you any free stuff because they're desperate to restart the economy, <laughs> I think. Uh, yeah, I think it's, it, a lot of people are just trying to find ways of getting getting the vaccine in different arms. Sure, I haven't heard a lot about the vaccine rollout in Tokyo. Well, again, I haven't been speaking to friends in Japan about this, but um, there's pretty good, pretty good vaccine compliance, and it's just a matter of, you know, things in Japan do need to be done in detail. There's that high kind of uncertainty avoidance. Uh, organizing everything takes a lot longer, rather like Germany. It's not like we're inefficient. It's just takes a lot longer to decide what to do. But one of the things that, that was interesting about Japan, and several interculturalist friends of mine said this, very early in the pandemic, uh, there wasn't quite the spread that you would predict in Tokyo, right, or in, in Japan. Because you see everybody living together in close quarters, you would think that, that it's all, that it would be a, a hotbed, it would be a petri dish. But having lived there, the idea of wearing masks preventatively is something that in Asian culture, people have done for a long time. Many Westerners visit Tokyo and they see all the people mm -hmm. wearing masks mm -hmm. yeah. on the subway. And I think all these people are afraid of catching something. And it's, it's the opposite. That when you have a cold or the flu mm. and you have to go out, you wear a mask. And there's a big trade in masks that have yeah. medications on them, like uh, menthol or things to help you breathe. Okay. So the idea of wearing a mask to prevent transmission to others is not a new thing, like it has been in the West. It's, it's a very commonplace thing. Mm -hmm. So that stopped mm -hmm. it. Second, think about how strangers greet each other. It tends not to be shaking hands. It's a bow, right? Mm -hmm. So there's one means of transmission which is also eliminated. It's a long yeah. shot to say that's an explanation, but I'm sure both of those factors contributed to uh, a slower spread in Japan than you would have predicted. Plus, all the restaurants and places where people get drunk and breathe over each other are much smaller, so you don't have giant super spreading mm -hmm. events. There's been a lot of studies on how the, the, the preferred distances that people like to stand uh, in different cultures. That I don't, I've often thought over the last year, like I wonder how much that plays a part in whether there's uh, lower cases in areas where people are further apart than... It's worthy of study. It's another one of our studies we have to rack up. <laughs> yes. We'll get another 10,000 on your, on your desk by next week. Hopefully it brings around a long-term change because Germany does have a very small sphere of personal space. 
And mm. as a British person, I often found myself feeling like I was being encroached upon. And yeah, I'm I'm a big guy and I don't look very friendly. So I was always kind of doubly taken aback by it because I wasn't intentionally trying to keep people out of my space, but I wasn't giving off vibes. Yeah, I need to mm. just start like staring people down a little bit more, but hopefully people will just like give a bit more space or I need just a, a hula hoop around me. Especially when queuing, I always find people mm. kind of get up in your, in your shit when, when you're queuing for things, but... I don't know. I mean, it's 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 by degrees, isn't it? Because British social distance isn't isn't that far. It's not like we're standing across a table from each other, but it's far enough. I think handshake distance, I guess, would be <laughs> like the extremity of, of of how far away you can hand, handshake somebody. But yeah, the um the thing I was looking at was saying that in Romania they've actually come up with this idea of there's like a location. It's a castle in Romania that looks. If if I said to you go and find Dracula's castle online, this is the castle you'd find. It just looks very Bran Castle. Sorry, is what it's called. It's called Bran Castle, and you get free admission to the museum's exhibit if you get go there and get your vaccine, and you get to see the medieval torture instruments as well. Great, great quote from the guy who runs the place, the marketing manager. Sorry of the of the castle. We want to show people how needles were used back in the Middle Ages in Europe, <laughs> uh, so you can go get the vaccine, and then you can go get. A good look at some some torture devices in a Romanian dungeon. That's, that seems like the the most Romanian thing you could do uh, on your weekend. But I know like Bratwurst has been offered. I think there's been some places that have done vice first in 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 around Bavaria. But yeah, I just think it's funny that Britain offers you a voucher and everyone else is offering you free food. Hmm. Oh yeah, you, you this was the question you wanted to ask about get, getting pissed up and going to the football. Whether that was a way of getting vaccines is that the question? no that was more for the politicians themselves like if i was running for election let's say in in dortmund or one of the the cities in northern westfalen one of the things i would definitely do is go to the football to show that i'm a a man of the people and i was wondering if that is something that we could sort of take sincerely because of course boris johnson has done this multiple times turned up at sporting events and the general reaction from british people is what the fuck is he doing there he doesn't care about football Uh, so i was just curious if food is a better way to bond with your people or doing the local activity like football uh, in northern westfalen is is better food is an interesting one that's the ultimate sharing and bonding isn't it i mean you eat around the table with the people you know and love and food is an act of generosity and it has lots of very satisfying emotional connections yeah, I would. I would definitely say that if I were a politician, I would. I would make sure that the events were catered well. Although what I've noticed with the, in this in this election in Germany, I was paying attention to the results and everything in twenty seventeen, but I've been way far more engaged this time around. What you notice is the politicians don't look as robotic as British politicians do, doing like normal normal things. So they stand out a little bit from from everybody else. I always feel like that that there's like an aura around them. That means that they look at they just act and sort of move and communicate in a different way. In Britain, there was a politician who lost an election because he ate a bacon sandwich in a weird way because he didn't look normal and that freaked people out. The football thing's interesting because didn't David Cameron say he was a West Ham fan and and he was actually an Aston Villa fan on his bio or something? He- well, this is it for for twenty years. He'd been saying he was a, a Villa fan. Like you did see when he was asked that question, he did panic and he it was a slip of the tongue more than anything. But yeah, at that point, the British public, especially football fans, smelt that bullshit. Mm-hmm. And when it's like, no, I, I don't want this man lying to me about 
something as significant as which team you support because it is a, a, a cult mm-hmm. type thing in the UK. Well, I think there's a fact that politicians are often local people. They're not, especially the um, MPs and things, they're usually campaigning quite locally. They're from the area. They're probably part of the Verein. They're, they're known locally in a, in a way that sort of parachuted MPs into certain constituencies in the UK or some like billionaire who's trying to become governor of Texas wouldn't be. Yeah, I, I think the answer to that problem is knitting model railways all right bird yeah. spotting <laughs> because clearly if people are looking at you know which football team a politician supports they don't have enough hobbies to use a german expression <laughs> i think there should be things that are more entertaining than what football team you you support that said i do have a british friend who was devastated when his son decided to support a different football team from him and it was like one of these things that's tearing my family apart, yeah, that kind of stuff. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and I thought, well, how nice for you. And since then, he's taken up photography as a bit of therapy. <laughs> I think I think in Britain, it with so few community spaces, I think football is one of the few activities left in Britain where people and communities gather on mass uh, to sort of do one activity. I think that's that's something that's quite telling. But also, it's focus grouping, isn't it? There's a lot of that going on in British politics where the every week they've got a group of like the most average people they can find and they ask them questions like do you like this policy what do you think about this what football team should he support oh well i like the colors of aston villa i think that's good but you can imagine them getting confused because villa's colors and west ham colors are the same i think i think that's definitely the case that it would it would touch on people's lives in a particular way in britain in a way it wouldn't it's so much in germany i don't think I wouldn't say you want to be like at work or doing some sort of fun activity and then a politician rocks up to try and shake your hand. I'm not sure you really want that to be happening. Well, again, you know, just going back to uh, good old Australia where I grew up, um, you know, there are so many bits of casual iPhone video Mm. uh, or sorry, smartphone video that capture, you know, how politicians, when they go do the meet and Mm. greet, it all goes absolutely spectacularly wrong. (laughs) You know, the the number of times... uh, Tony Abbott used to be Prime Minister of Australia. A number of oh yeah, he's got some doozies out there, like yeah, yeah, like and you know he's at a supermarket and saying hello, sir, can I talk to you? And and the marvelous uh, constituent says fuck off, dickhead. Uh, <laughs> or, and I think it might even have been worse than that. Well, it's uncontrollable, isn't it? You can't control what the you, you had that when when politicians have visited like flooded flooded areas. Again, Boris Johnson had this uh, yeah. twenty nineteen, and they were just like, what are you doing here, like. He, what are you going to do to help us? And you can see him just going, oh, he's not ready for like actual people being angry at him. He's sort of a bit, a bit sort of surprised by it. I, again, I think it's just is what happens when you get into politics. You, you become sort of distanced from normal people. Certainly within, definitely within American politics, certainly within British politics, but not so much. Like Mer- Merkel's famous for being able to go to a local shop and people just leaving her alone and letting her go, get, go about her business. Like that was one of the sort of big, big aspects. They're not celebrities in the same way. So I think they can engage with people at a different level. I, I, I find it hard to imagine anything more satisfying in life than being able to tell Boris Johnson to fuck off to his face. I, I, I think it would be one of the, the happiest moments for a lot of, <laughs> of English people's lives these days. And yeah, I think that instinct yeah. doesn't exist, as you say, for, for more sort of local representation. And again, it's something that's interesting about the, the way the campaigns run here is it feels like the PR is a little bit more loose. Like in mm. Britain, it seems very staged and like they go to places where they know they're not going to be challenged and no one's going to ask them awkward questions because they're trying to minimize the 
the video like marty said the the camera phone footage of them sort of awkwardly trying to deal with someone telling them they were a fucking bell end well it's very interesting just the the difference between as an outsider to some degree in both cultures but to listen to you guys talk about do you want to engage with uh, a politician do you want to tell the politician he's a fool uh, or do you want to say i think you should think differently on this issue now in germany we're not so much i think you're a fool it's kind of like let's talk about the hard questions mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that, and it's because germany is actually more egalitarian than mm-hmm. than the uk the the class system uh is uh, really after two world wars the class system was pretty much destroyed and the allies made sure that when they occupied that all the institutions of government were very egalitarian it was very decentralized and people talked a lot about uh, real issues and that that's something that uh, german culture has that britain kind of doesn't and the the business of telling the toff that he's a fool is really you know laden with class things the middle mm-hmm. class which you know in britain is almost an insult to say somebody's middle class right uh, are much more, much more on the let's talk about the issues mm-hmm. stuff, and the, you know, and the the people in power, uh, are much more hierarchical. They think just being in power is, is a big deal, you know, and they they misread the the people who give them the power. Well, there hasn't been a, a vast amount of people like confronting politicians. I know Armin Laschet has had a couple of dicey mm-hmm. moments, but most of the time you don't see people rushing up at the street to shout at politicians and. And the way that you saw it in some instances with through through um, the last four, four or five years in Britain, or in the US, you see that too. I think there is more of a discourse. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't entirely say there isn't any class structure, but I think that's a conversation again for for another day. Yeah. But I think I think yeah, I think there is a there is a there's less distance between politicians and and the people when it comes to politics in Germany for sure. The Guardian opened a recent article by Merkel with the following assertion that Angela Merkel's 16-year tenure at the top of German politics will leave lasting legacies in many fields, but the art of political oratory is unlikely to be one of them. When the Chancellor addresses the public, she is rarely snappy and quotable, and she has even admitted she didn't believe in governance by speech-making, saying, the idea that a person can touch other people so much with words that they change their minds is not one I've ever shared, but it's a beautiful idea nonetheless. As we are 100% words based here, our hopes are a little dashed, but we will persevere and strive boldly on. The Guardian continued to evaluate Merkel's time in office with 16 key words and phrases, and we at Decades From Home are going to explore 10 of them here and now. first one they had on their list was die Merkel Rauter. For people who don't know what that is, it is the rhombus shape uh, that Merkel makes with her hands when facing cameras at summits or during visits of state. This became her trademark gesture more by accident than by design, or so the Chancellor claims. She said the question was always, where should your arms go? And that's how it came about. So is this an iconic part of her legacy? Well, it's interesting that Olaf Schultz has got posters with him doing the rhombus mm-hmm. shape, which is that shape that she does with the hands. Uh, and, and I think they've done it a couple of times. Various different candidates have done it. So it is iconic. It's, it's, it's subliminal, isn't it? To me, this, this is absolutely classic scientist introvert stuff, that you keep your emotions to yourself. You don't have broad gestures like uh, shaking hands vigorously or 
God forbid, hugging people <laughs> or, or whatever, which you might have in an American political campaign. And it's simply exactly as she says. It means nothing more than what do I do yeah. with my hands? And she's arrived at that because clasping her hands, folding her hands is not right. Uh, putting it together in, you know, crossing her arms wouldn't be right. Um, just standing right there with her arms at her sides wouldn't be right. Uh, because all of those actually have some meaning, mm. right, when you, when you look at it. But this is something neutral, mm -hmm. nice, scientific even, geometrical. <laughs> to me, it, it's, one of, it, it's almost like a, you know, a soothing thing for herself. If I'm standing like this, nobody can criticize me. Mm -hmm. uh, I, mm. am, I am adopting a neutral pose. I, I always felt it was something that you'd learned through public speaking. Because when, when we've, Simon and I both done some um, training when it comes to like presentations, I'm sure you've probably come across that or had some training or done some training yourself, with, uh, how to present properly. And they're always talking about don't hold a pen in your hand, don't have a piece of paper. And I assumed it was one of those things where she just developed it as a way of not looking shifty, which it seems to have achieved, you know? <laughs> mm. Yeah, and, and uh, the thing is, the moment you have a mannerism, uh, it's very difficult. Uh, for work, and I don't want to talk about work here, but we did some studies of what makes a, uh, a person likable, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things, it's very different for men and women, and especially so in Germany. To be a likable woman, you have to be efficient, on top of everything, in control, you know, the matron, who's, uh, or the nurse, or the teacher who knows everything, or whatever it is. That's kind of admirable. And that sort of, I'm on top of everything and in control is how many people in Germany say, that's a likable woman. Whereas men get a lot more emotional leeway to express things with passion or volume mm. or whatever it is. And I think so. Merkel has, has faced a, a really tough challenge, being a woman in politics, to show I'm under control. Now, in other cultures, mm -hmm. like the United States, being too much under control means you can't be trusted. And, our, uh, you know, um, I won't mention the words Hillary Clinton, but, you know, those she deliberately hid the emotional side of herself, and that cost her a lot in politics. And she actually got mm -hmm. ahead when she did show the emotional side of herself. But she didn't feel that she could. And it's a, it's a thing that Merkel seems to have got around that our good friend uh, Mrs. Clinton didn't. Okay, so the second uh, one we're going to look at here is the German word Ertüchtigen. Um, this word in Merkel's vocabulary is the one with the strongest whiff of old Prussia. Uh, Ertüchtigen means to toughen up through physical exercise. I mean, this, this phrase is, I don't know, it just seems a little bit uh, on the nose, I guess would be the best description. She's She's a tough cookie she always presents it presents herself as such even when like she's had pretty extensive challenges like dealing with trump she had that tough demeanor the the sort of side eye look when he was speaking but she's had that i think this comes from the eurozone crisis and the financial crisis where she was talking to countries and, and telling them that they needed to, to to toughen up but it meant a multitude of different things i think it didn't just mean be tougher uh it meant you had to improve trying to push people to improve which is ironic given the, f the state of the country she's leaving as she leaves office i know there's a lot of articles out there that are happy to lionize angela merkel but she is isn't half leaving some trouble behind as she exits stage left oh yeah yeah the, the economist assessment of merkel's time it says exactly that if you look at the cover they say mm. you know she's left the country in a mess but and you know 
personal opinion from living here and knowing the experience of, of others around the world, you know, we should all have such a mess, frankly. Yeah. There are lots of problems to address, but there's plenty of good stuff too. The, the business of er, Ertüchtigen, uh, about physical exercise, I think, my my decoding of that is that we've lit on the idea that it's physical toughness, right? As opposed to just keeping the body in good working order. In order to do that, you have to subject it to some kind of stress. You have to do something with it. And I think mm -hmm. this, and, you know, uh, we all live in freewheeling, fun-loving Bavaria. And I see a great <laughs> deal of it, you know, it's not entirely Prussian. You know, everybody keeps their body in good working order because that just makes sense, like maintaining your car or sweeping the floor or whatever it is. Um, and that means that, it, that when you have to subject your body or your brain or your spirit to the kind of work it sometimes has to do, uh, then you're able to do it. I think that that's, that's much more a German thing than a... Well, it is equally a German thing as a Prussian thing nowadays would be my, mm. my thought on it. You know, you could talk about that almost every politician. I, I look at them and I say, yeah, these are people who are not going to let physical weakness or physical ailments stop them, that they're going to be able to cope with it. Hmm. Uh, the idea of fostering resilience is definitely a, a very positive thing here. And it's not something we really get in from UK politicians. And a lot of American politicians will be telling you how wonderful things are going to be, uh, as opposed to a reality of like yeah times might be challenging i think this this notion of resilience yeah. is a key thing for her yeah and physical uh you know the physical condition mm. of candidates for office i mean you heard all of the the arguments around you know uh, of american presidents who are all increasingly old in the last uh 16 years or so about their their physical resilience and how you know people say oh no perfect health oh no terrible health oh, that kind of stuff and and that's just kind of like it's a matter of opinion as opposed to something that each of the uh, each of the incumbents in office have to address okay number three we have das public viewing and of course this snuck into the german language around 2006 when germany hosted the football world cup and yeah this is definitely something that's become part of German culture as public viewing, yeah. very Denglish. It was something that I remember from my first trip here in 2008 was watching Germany play, I think it was Portugal. It was like a beautiful sunny day, beautiful summer day, surrounded by trees in a park, watching a big screen drinking mm -hmm. beer. It's in that moment that I realized I need to live here. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was like a real, but it was a formative experience for us here. And I was like this, obviously I knew it was never going to be like that every day, but it was certainly eye-opening for sure yeah. well i have to say this this is one of the the bits of denglish that really annoys me because when i was at university i actually had a part-time job and it was an excellent part-time job it was an, as an undertaker's clerk so i looked after the uh, lots of things in the office uh, and whenever somebody uses the word viewing my mind goes somewhere <laughs> else with that so, yeah of course but the the whole notion that you are allowed to get really passionate with other people if it's about something like football, every country has a sports, sports teams that are magnets for emotion, right? Uh, emotions, and often kind of combative emotions that we wouldn't otherwise uh, be able to express. And it doesn't seem so, so odd here, but that it had to be borrowed from English. Why do, you, why do you guys think that you couldn't have a German word for public viewing? I think it was because it was the World Cup. Mm. 
and because they were looking for a universal phrase that everyone would would know that they could see the 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 fan miles and then the hard mm. Like the fact that it had a fan mile says everything. The fa- fan miler. <laughs> and the fact that I think it was yeah. it was much more pragmatic, as you've pointed out, the sort of pragmatic nature of communication. Yeah. I think it was exactly that that there were there's going to be English speakers here. We need to make sure all the pissed England fans can make it to the <laughs> to watch the football instead of sort of taking over a fountain and destroying half the city. I think that's probably what they were thinking. But that's a unnecessarily cynical perspective from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, number four is death stress test. And of course, stress testing is using medicine to show how the heart performs during physical activity. And in the Merkel era, this was accentuated by a series of economic and geopolitical crises. A stress test became something that every structure needed to undergo, be it banks, governing coalitions or nuclear power stations. Yeah, I, I think this is an interesting one because the idea that things can withstand mm. stress so that they don't break down is inherently mm-hmm. a conservative idea. This can survive without changing mm. is one of those things. And yeah, a lot of German institutions have survived stress tests, but then don't go anywhere, right? And that's not unique to Germany. The idea that you'd have robust institutions is, is like the basis of civilization. You know, it shouldn't crumble just if something unexpected happens. But it can often distract us from actually making the institutions work better. And again, it's not just Germany. It's it's around the world that, that that's the case. Yeah, it can survive the crisis, but can't actually make any further progress past that point. I think there is a lot of yeah. standing still has been a, a, a theme, shall we say, throughout the last 16 years with certain things. But Yeah, and, and that's that's the theme of, of Merkel's... Uh, uh, tenure as uh, chancellor is that it has always been, you know, stability first. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it, I mean, uh, a culture which spent much of the first half of the 20th century, and like up until 1989, a good deal of you know, the second half, under a state of constant stress mm-hmm. or threat or war or destruction or whatever. And we can see it still in German culture. We can see the reluctance to invest in your own home as real estate, for example, mm. is uh, I would trace it directly back to the fact that so many homes were destroyed mm. in the early part of the 20th century, right? And what happened mm. to it and how ownership wasn't really all that, you know, wasn't really sacrosanct mm. in many ways after the war. How did you how did you determine who owned land or property or whatever? Mm. And so you can understand that wanting to have absolutely secure institutions is a particularly German thing i could i could understand that completely Mm. perfectly as well as dealing in cash or Mm -hmm. being uh financially conservative when you know we are now probably about two decades out of living memory of the hyperinflation of the 1920s Mm. but what the effect it's had on german culture and german behavior with money is really quite profound i think or that that's what i feel but here's a question for you guys what my my thing about denglish is that I don't believe any language borrows a word just to sound cool. I think that it's because it there is a foreign phrase that sums up something that it's kind of difficult to express in the local language, right? Why would you have to borrow a stress test from English? Yeah, I mean, I think there are other examples of this sort of bad borrowing. The one that always comes to my mind is, is cafes to go instead of cafes of midnamen. Yeah. I think when there are existing phrases, it's, it is something that irks me then. But I guess stress tests being borrowed because of its scientific connotations is probably my guess. 
Oh, and, and just on, on the subject, Simon, of coffee to go. Mm -hmm. Here in Munich, where we are in the middle of a whole lot of rediscovery of folksy Bavarian language and stuff like that, mm -hmm. uh, there's been a bit of a bit of reaction against coffee to go. And I see lots of Kaffee zum Gehen. Okay, zum right? Gehen. Okay. As opposed to Kaffee zum Mitnehmen. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a shorter phrase and, and also is the literal coffee yeah. to go. Right. I like that. It's nice. Coffee to walk, I guess you would mm -hmm, call that. Mm -hmm. I can tell you several cafes where, where you can get a cafe at some gain. And around the corner from where I live is the Kafer Delicatessen head office, and they do cafe to midname it. I would, I, yeah, I would have thought they would, though, because, I mean, their clientele are... Uh, yeah, are, are old bourgeois people who, uh, you know, who carry their dogs in their handbags and, and wear <laughs> ascots and blazers around their shoulders without sticking their arm in them. My neighborhood is so bourgeois, you'd scarcely hear the Schubert over the rustle of the antimacassars. <laughs> okay, the fifth one we're picking is Energiewende. Uh, and the term Energiewende refers not to a political system change, but the transition to low-carbon or renewable energy sources. The Energiewende predates Merkel's tenure and is still ongoing, and the country has committed itself to becoming greenhouse gas neutral by 2045. I mean, she, she changed it in 2010, so it would mm. phase out, or it wouldn't allow nuclear power to be a bridge in technology. I, I, to, to some extent, I feel like I'm harsh on Merkel, but at the same time, I think, because uh, ultimately she, she's faced a lot of challenges that, that have taken down other governments she's also taken on a lot and energy vendors is a good example where it just hasn't really worked in the way i think she was expecting it to or perhaps that people hoped or maybe it has i don't know i don't know what her intention was it always felt a little bit haphazard and reactionary than it was sort of we've got a plan it was like oh god fukushima's happened we've got to do something and i'm like are we in danger of having a typhoon here is that something we need to worry about in in Germany? I'm not entirely sure it is. To me, I, I think Germany has always worked best uh, when those in charge have a plan. It always takes a long time to make a plan, and it's going to be perfect as long as the physical conditions on which you base the plan don't change. But there are lots of cultural attributes that, that, that make that so in Germany. One of the things is, you know, how do you change horses in midstream? How do you try something and then say, oh, let's try something else? And that's what, say, American culture is good at. They're not good at making, this is generalization, stereotypes, and don't hold me to it. There are cultures that are really, really good at changing horses in midstream and saying, that doesn't work, let's do something else. It's a little bit difficult uh, in Germany to do that. I mean, look at the Berlin airport, something went wrong. Uh, and it was almost like, well, now we need to go back to square one rather than, oops, now we need to improvise a bit. And that's, that, that's a real cultural thing. I don't want to make stereotypes out of this, but in a givenda, you know, what, how do we change, which we all know we have to do, but then still preserve the car industry, which is so huge in Germany? How yeah. do we keep up the enormous amount of energy which industry consumes? Uh, without uh, abandoning coal. And there's still, you know, compared to a lot of neighboring countries, we still have a lot of uh, coal-powered coal um, energy in Germany. Uh, and the, the economist assessment of, of, what, uh, of Merkel's tenure make, points that out, that, it's, that we haven't vended, uh, to mangle the German phrase, quite as much <laughs> as, as the plan has indicated, right? Because 
change is something you have to plan and manage. That takes time, that takes detail, that takes knowledge. It will be a good vendor when it happens, but, I'm, uh, but it's not necessarily going to happen as fast as maybe the planet needs us to, to work. Number six we have is alternative laws. And Merkel's government declared all type of policy decisions alternative laws. Banking bailouts in response to the global financial crisis, military missions in Afghanistan, reducing the national debt. Her use of the phrase also inspired the naming of the first party to the right of her CDU to make it into the Bundestag, alternative for Deutschland. Spit noise on the end there. <laughs> I mean, it shows how powerful that phrase is that they, they adopted after they adopted it as, as part of their name. There was something really steely about Merkel's tenure, and, but again, it's you make you make decisions in Germany and you sort of stick to them. As Marty pointed out with, with, with the airport, I think it's another one of these examples of steely determination. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't like uncertainty or ambiguity, particularly in German culture. And no alternative is the absolute most certain you can be. Okay, number seven, we have Das Neuland, uh, virgin territory. Uh, is how Merkel described the World Wide Web in 2013, saying, Das Internet is for uns alle Neuland. The Internet is virgin territory for all of us. People scoffed at the phrase as if the Chancellor was finally waking up to digitalization some 30 years after the transmission control protocol, Internet Web Protocol, allowed computers on different networks to talk to each other. I think the article points out that this is actually mentioned, she said, I think she said this when she was talking about security concerns. And it was misconstrued. And I think it was in response to the American phone hacking scandal. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is mildly hilarious that we're saying that she was saying that in 2013. And out of context, it does look kind of funny, especially given the uh, the situation with internet infrastructure here. Oh, yeah. Th this, this one is just silly, right? Because <laughs> the world tomorrow is virgin territory. The world is virgin territory. Everything is virgin territory. And to be able to say you can plan for it or see it ahead uh, is is kind of a... Well, it, it, it talks about the, the role of imagination in German culture, because one of the things, again, in my marketing practice, the word imagination comes up an awful lot. And there's no perfect, uh, there's no perfect word for it in Germany, in German. Uh, there's, uh, you know, the word, which has escaped my memory right now, which is being able to, being able to foresee something, you know, like to predict something which has i think it's a construction of forsichti or whatever but uh, but the at the other end is just mm. fantasia mm. which is like baron von munchausen and it's kind of goofing off and things like that and this thing in in the middle that we call imagination that we in uh, you know in english is a very positive word is is difficult to translate into german number eight we started with it and we're gonna pretty much close with it wir schaffen das uh, wir schaffen das became merkel's version of obama's yes we can the casual throwaway line that nonetheless spoke of her determination to take on logistical and political challenges facing her at the time. Just like us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. She famously said it in 2015 during the migrant crisis. And I think it's one of the more, it's one of those really admirable things because I think it was a response to like, how are we going to, how are we going to take in all these people, all these mm -hmm. refugees? And she was just like, well, we can do it. And I think it's totally spot on. We have the space and we have the facilities and we have the, the money to do it. So I like that it, it likens it to Obama's Yes We Can because it's, it's got the, the same kind of note of optimism. Mm. I, I'm totally with you on that, Nick. I think this is one of the things you couldn't imagine an American president looking at the soaked migrant, and I'll use mm -hmm. the words in heavy inverted commas, crisis, at the southern border, and he wouldn't say, yeah, look, these are people in need. We can help them. We will do it. We can do it. 
Um, you couldn't imagine that being said, but Merkel was able to do it through her, you know, otherwise extremely modest behavior. And I'm, I'm, def I'm definitely not just, you know, again, to, <laughs> to, to make it clear, I am not on necessarily on, on uh, Merkel's political side. You know, when people talk about Merkel, and, and you wrote extensively on this, Nick, is that, uh, you know, I've, I've sometimes described her not accurately 100%, but it, it rings true to me, is that she's kind of like Margaret Thatcher without the hair. Um, and the, she's a very conservative woman, right? That's why mm -hmm. she doesn't mm -hmm. change things. And her stance on marriage equality you know, cost me um, big time money, actual, actual money. Um, mm. And she only was dragged, uh, you know, reluctantly into that, I think. And she still voted against it in, in, when it came to a, mm. uh, a, an open vote in the mm. Bundestag. Uh, but at the same time, this is the thing that you want from a public administrator, isn't it, really? Yes, we can do it. Yeah. It'll mm. be hard. Immigration is always a short-term cost for long-term gain. And she said that. You know, mm. we're, we're, short of, we're short of people in Germany. Um, and so I'm, I'm a big Wir schaffen das fan. Really, I think that's one of the mm. best things about her as a as a politician. Okay, our penultimate one here is the Lügenpresse. Um, this phrase dates back to the 19th century and means the liar's press. And it entered wider usage in Germany in the First World War when it was used by German intellectuals railing against foreign newspapers' coverage of the Kaiser's colonial rule. Many, many years later, the phrase washed back into Germany on the wave of a backlash against Merkel's refugee policy among some parts of the population, chanted at anti-government demonstrations organised by the Pegida movement. Another, another spit sound there for Pegida. Pegida started using it, and I think they started using it because, obviously in Germany, certain... Uh, symbols of national socialism aren't allowed but there's certain key phrases that when mm. used signal like have a, have this sort of secondary meaning behind it and i think lugan presser was uh, yeah it was used yeah. in the first world war but it was certainly a big phrase used by the, the the nazis and i think there was an intention behind it they knew they were using that phrase and why they were using it uh, not to to say that they're necessarily national socialists but they definitely and if, have a lot in common. And if they're challenged for using this term, 45 gave them the opportunity to be, oh, this is just a German for fake mm -hmm. news. This connotation doesn't exist. It's nothing to do mm. with the Third Reich. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. So yeah, it, was, it was definitely a, a good workaround for Pegida and their ilk. Our last one here is the Schwerkraft. Merkel's training as a quantum chemist has frequently shaped her political vocabulary. Defending her pandemic management in front of Germany's parliament in December 2020, the Chancellor spoke of the danger of not sticking to concrete facts, saying, quote, I decided to study physics in the GDR because I was quite sure that you can suspend a lot of things, but not gravity, not the speed of light, even in the GDR. She said two and two makes four, even under Erich Honecker, the former East German leader. Asked by the journalist Maurice von Uslar which physical law also applied to politics, Merkel proposed the law of Schwerkraft or gravity without mass no depth it's pretty like I, I hear that and i'm just like can you imagine like leaders in other countries giving that answer i just like not certainly not in the english-speaking world <laughs> maybe um maybe in new zealand but well when you talk about the schwerkraft i hear in german different echoes of this thinking about American presidents, for example, there was a, uh, a president who was actually trained in kind of nuclear physics, quantum chemistry, whatever it is, you know, that, that kind of very, very serious and difficult science. 
and I'll ask you two gentlemen to guess which president that was. It's, tw- tw- it's obviously 20th century. Yeah. Okay. And it was it was quantum physics that we're knowledgeable in. Or... Particularly a, a nuclear engineer, I think. I'm, I'm saying this from memory. So I'm... Post-50s, right? Have to be post-50s. Yeah, yeah. Who, 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 is, who is the scientist president? I would have said it was like Carter or something. That would be my guess. Absolutely right. Yes! Oh, wow. <laughs> Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and he was the one who really didn't bring that to politics. He was no, very, he I mean, he was also a kind of lay lay preacher in his church. He was sort of known for being quite folksy, wasn't he? Well, the peanut farmer was the, the derogatory term they always yeah. used for him, yeah. Yeah, but, but he commanded a nuclear submarine, I think, if, if, if memory serves. Wow. And this is, this is the thing that, you know, he would never dream of bringing that kind of certainty that you get in the physical sciences into a social scientific activity, mm-hmm. if I can describe it as that like politics whereas Merkel would the notion that you can achieve certainty is something that's very appealing to her electorate and mm-hmm. I would say that's also within you know German culture by contrast American culture is much more comfortable with uncertainty mm-hmm. and and, uh, and kind of likes it kind of likes things to be shaken up a bit from time to time that's something that again we can criticize the behavior of German politicians for holding things back because they always want to have that certainty. But there's also something very comforting about it. Merkel has is, is always done fact-based um, decisions to the point of tedium, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm kind of glad that she did. I think it's interesting that in Britain we say when a politician is surviving or able to survive a series of scandals that they defy political gravity. It's an interesting uh, note that that's the only time that we'd start getting scientific is when mm. someone's... <laughs> Someone's avoiding being done in because they they, they had it away with their secretary. (laughs) Hello, Freunde. Thank you to Marty for taking time to join us this week. If you enjoyed the conversation, look out for him in future episodes. Also, big thank yous to the mysterious Decades From Home Ultras account, Tenyet and Casey, the defender of the much-maligned Frey Bentos pie, who all retweeted or shared the show. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not give us a rating on iTunes, which only takes a minute and can really help us. Retweet us, share a link, or post with the hashtag DecadesFromHome, all lowercase on Twitter or Instagram. As ever, if you have any questions, feedback, or maybe an article or topic you'd like us to cover, you can tweet Simon on at DecadesFromHome, you can tweet me at 40%German, you can also get us on 40%german at gmail.com. If you have time, take a look at 40%german.com. Weekly articles are up every Saturday. All that's left to say is thanks and bis zum nächsten Mal. Tschüss! Welcome to Measure Like a Brit, the game show that makes you measure like a Brit to tell us which bit is what bit when talking with a Brit. I'm your host, Brit Britterson, and I'm delighted to be joined by our two contestants today, Nick and Marty. Come on down, you two, and let's measure like a Brit. The rules of the game are simple. I, Brit Britterson, will give you a scenario, and you have to tell me how far, big, hot, heavy, or voluminous the thing is. But here's the catch. You have to do it like a Brit. None of that fancy metric stuff here. We have taken back control and we are weighing our successes in pounds and stones, just like the good people of 1820s England, because, you know, 
those were the best of times. Question one. This one is for Nick, who won the coin toss by calling Queen Victoria's side. Yes. How far is it from London to Newcastle upon Tyne? 275 miles. I'm sorry, you didn't let me finish the question. Question one in full is how far is it from London to Newcastle if you are jogging? And that, of course, means you switch from miles to kilometres, and the answer is 444. I'm terribly sorry. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> question two. This one is for Marty. Marty, how much do you weigh? Oh, that's classified information. You know that. Uh, what do you, how much do you think I weigh? What do I look like I weigh? This is not the role of Brit Britterson. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I tell you what, uh, what I weigh, uh, 65 kilograms. Uh, okay, uh, very good. Um, I'm sorry, though, again, I didn't quite finish the question. Question two is, how much do you weigh if you are an elephant? And as that is a large animal, we would weigh it in tons. Depending on the elephant, Asian or African bush, I would have accepted anything between two and seven tons. Please, wait for the whole question. So we are still at a deadlock, zero points on the board. Question three, back to you, Nick. How much does Eddie the Eagle weigh? Guess between three and seven kilos. Ooh, I see what you've done there. You would be correct that most eagles weigh between three and seven kilos. But you forgot one important thing. This is measure like a Brit. And we are not talking about eagles, the flying birds, nor the California hotel loving rock band. I asked you about Eddie the Eagle, the English ski jumper and Olympian who in 1988 <laughs> became the first competitor since 1928 to represent Great Britain in Olympic ski jumping. I'm sorry, but the question was clear. Eddie, who was hindered by his weight and the sport he loved so well, weighed in at 12 stone 13 pounds at the time of competition. Okay, so we are still at zero to zero. It is anyone's game. Marty, your time to shine. Marty. How much milk should be added to a cup of British tea? Oh, I'm. Oh, I. I don't know. I don't measure it in amount. I measure it in time. That when I'm pouring milk into a British teacup, I say about three quarters of a second of a pour is what I put into it. Which I guess I don't know. What would that be in in maybe five or. 10 milliliters milliliters I, I like that i like the fact that marty's bringing brit britison down this is it this is chaos this is how it's gonna work you're, you're not even measuring an amount you're measuring in goddamn time you're a hero you're a hero uh, actually i should measure it in squeezes of the cow's udder shouldn't i so two i put in two i put in two udders or two squeezes but you know am i right millimeters oh i am sorry no dice this is a difficult one though milk is of course measured by brits in pints so the correct answer would be 0.008 pints per cup i would have also accepted 0.005 liters if you had stipulated that it was a vegan milk alternative such as oat Why? or Why? soy as brits measure those in liters that makes no sense so it's zero zero at the end of the show and that means only one thing random units showdown In this tiebreak, the rules are simple. I will give you a unit, and you have to tell me if it is used for length, mass, volume, area, or distance. Number one, Nick, a 
poppy seed. Length, mass, volume, area, or distance. Um, I don't know. Area? Oh, I'm sorry. A poppy seed is for mass. One quarter or one fifth of a barley corn, which is one third of an inch. The notional base under the composition of yards and perches, which is naturally 2.54 centimeters for the non-Brits. I'm sorry. Still on zero. <laughs> Great. Number two. Marty. Bovate. Is bovate length, mass, volume, area, or distance? Ooh, that's a tough one. You know, the fact that it says both, that suggests it's something to do with cows or something like that. So I would suggest that a bovate is a fraction of a furlong, because I know that furlongs and horses go together. Is that somewhere near right? You're in a close direction. I'm going to give you a point there, Marty. Congratulations! A bovate is naturally the amount of land one ox can plough in a single year, also called an ox gang approximately 15 acres or one-eighth of a caracate. Marty taking the lead. One final pair of questions. Nick, you need to get this right if you have any chance to avoid losing the game. Nick, what is a shaftment? Um, I'm not sure I'm allowed to say in public. Is it a unit of, um, I don't know, length? He's done it! Well done, Nick. A shaftment is indeed for length. It is the width of the hand and the outstretched thumb. Six and a half inches before the 12th century, six thereafter. Well, as a gay gentleman, I'd have to say that, you know, that, that coincides with my experience. <laughs> okay, so final question is all on you, Marty. Will you leave a winner or have to live with a draw? Marty, final question. What is a grain? Heard that used in pharmacy, that it's uh, used as a grain of Something. So I'm going to guess number in this one because you count count out the the number of grains of of stuff in a pharmacy. But you know it could be a weight. It could be a weight like a gram. Good God, he's done it! Well done, Marty. You go home a winner. A grain is indeed used for weight. It is sixty four point seven nine eight one milligrams, or to be more British about it, one seven thousandth of a pound. Well done to our victor, Marty, who goes home today with a hundred weight of English cheddar and a kilderkin of English ale. Well done, well done, Nick. You don't have to go home empty-handed either. You get to take home a pottle of Worcestershire sauce. Don't you mean bottle? Pottle is indeed a measurement, young Nicholas, and if you had known that, you might have had a better chance. That's all for this time on Measure Like a Brit. I've been your host, Brit Britterson, and remember, now that we get to go back to these ancient measurements, everything will be just fine. Join us again for next time on Measure Like a Brit.